Finally, our epistle lesson and the, the sermon text this morning comes from Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 through chapter 4, verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes, Slave, obey in, Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. Masters, treat your servants, your slaves, justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. The word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Lord, I pray that the meditations of my heart and the words that I speak may be pleasing to you and edifying to your people. May we all be doers of the word and not hearers only. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The typical way I think this um, text is preached and applied is to exhort Christians to be better employees because they want to please God by obeying Him. And that's obviously right. That's what the text says. Since we've eliminated slavery as they practice it in the ancient world and later, these texts are usually employed or applied to employer-employee relationships, and that's appropriate too. But I want to do something a little bit different today. Assuming you all have some experience, most of you, at least the older ones here, with having an employer at some point in your life, I would like you to consider how the way you work to please your employer in this text should influence how you think about obeying God. Now, there is much people can do to better serve their employers by considering what God wants of them. The reference to eye service, for example, in 322 makes the point that while we can escape the observation of an employer, God is with us all the time. Obviously, embracing such a reality could and should affect how diligently someone works for an employer. But there's this other factor. As Christians, we all know that we're supposed to obey God's commands and, by logical implication, if nothing else, we're supposed to not disobey Him. It's a very clean, binary distinction, a very clean contrast. Obey, don't disobey. But this distinction in practical life is kind of overly simplistic. We know that God wants obedience from pure motives, for example. That would be one thing that we could work on. But I want to talk about what I think is a more practical issue. So think again about employee-employee relationship. Uh, say someone works part-time as a driver for a residential community and uh, you know, serving the elderly, and he works there on weekends to, to get some extra income. I don't know why that popped into my head, but it's just an example. And say you have an annual job review and you're, you meet with your supervisor. And so he mentions in passing some things that you've done 
about your proficiency in responding to calls, picking up customers, driving them where they want to go. Uh, much of the review would not really be about the fact that you do your official job duties. It would be about, because if you didn't perform your duties, you would have heard about it already. Maybe you wouldn't be employed anymore. Much of the review would be about something else, about your ability to smile and be pleasant and give your, the residents, the customers, a good experience so that they like you and don't dislike you and then dislike the, their whole relationship with their, with their organization, with the, with the community. It would be about whether or not you're willing to work outside your actual job description just cheerfully when you have some downtime, when you're not that busy with what your official duties are. And really, by the way, you know, the other thing is, you notice when your supervisor's talking about you, he actually wants to say that you exceed all your expectations. There's actually a, you know, a format. And it's basically, if you've done everything, he'll tick off the boxes and you'll have a C average. And you don't want that. You don't want that. You want to exceed his expectations. You know, you're always told you don't have to work extra hours if it's not on the schedule and you've made other plans, understandable. But if you are willing to work a little bit extra because when they need you, when they have an emergency, someone else gets sick, someone's car breaks down, someone's absent for some reason, and you, keep, you save basically the reputation of the institution, they like that and they'll mention it. You know, you want to be valuable and you can become more valuable and you know that. You know that, and you know that they're looking for that in employees. In real life, the relationship between employer and employee is often hard to pin down in terms of requirements and whether one has met or violated one of those requirements. Now, every parent knows this. And now I'm going to get really unfair to the younger members of our congregation. But every parent knows this. Half the time... The issue with a son or daughter is not obedience versus disobedience, but obedience versus really slow obedience. Or obedience versus obedience with unasked commentary about the assigned task. Or obedience versus obedience after you have satisfactorily answered 20 questions or more about the reason for the task. Or obedience versus obedience according to an unknown Time schedule. Have you taken out the trash yet? Oh, I was going to. I will. It's midnight now. Well, I'm going to stay up till one. I'll do it. So when Paul tells slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, and whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, he is revealing something about the quality of the obedience God wants from us. And we find similar concerns about obedience to God's commands in other scriptures. Uh, Philippians 2, 14 through 16. Do all things that you may be blameless and innocent. No, do all things without grumbling or complaining to, that you may be blameless or innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Imagine if Abraham had sighed when he saw those three guys at his door. That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked, and twist, a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. 
Notice here that the Apostle Paul stakes the witness of the Philippian church not just on their obedience, do all things, right? But on their cheerful obedience. Peter says something similar. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. That's 1 Peter 4.9. Going back to the Apostle Paul, when he writes to the Romans to serve each other according to their gifts, he starts mentioning attitudes as well as actions. The one who contributes in generosity. The one who leads with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Romans 12.8. And then this leads on to more, to more general instructions. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Now, I doubt the Apostle Paul is really trying to, to encourage Christians to literally have a competitive attitude against one another to say, I'm showing more honor than you are. That wouldn't really work out. But it does make the point that you need to not be half-hearted. This is something you're striving to improve yourself to do. This is something you're killing attitudes that get in the way of your doing. And that's going to take time, practice, and work. He wants us to perform these duties with alacrity, a really great word. This is how the Bible speaks. We are told that some behavior should be done with alacrity. Cheerful promptness is a definition I got. While others should be done reluctantly or hesitatingly, even if you have to do them, by the way. See, these actually can be something that might be a good thing to do, but just because of the way human beings are and what kind of people we are, we have to be reluctant. We have to be slow. So James 1.19, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Is it, wrong to, is it always wrong to be angry? No. But you tend to generate reasons why you should be angry that won't hold up to the light of day. Now, that's a problem. We get angry. We never consider why we should get angry. We just get angry. And then we immediately generate all the justifications we need to be angry and to get angrier. All right? It's like depression. You get depressed and you start doing things that make you more depressed. You get angry. You do the same way. So some things have to have a natural break. And some things you need to do automatically. So listening, taking time to evaluate on the one hand, and obeying God's commands. Once you know this is what you, this is what you gotta do, you do it promptly. That should be something we do without hesitation. We should do it even automatically. We should be working for that. While speaking, especially speaking in anger, because that's the drunk driving of the Bible. That should be done, if at all, reluctantly, slowly. And God himself is like this, remember? Second uh, Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, which really means he's slow in another way, all right? He's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance, Second Peter 3, 9. So in the language of the King James Bible, by the way, this means that God is not a slacker. Don't be a slacker. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness. 
But while God is not a slacker in keeping his promises, he makes a point. He actually boasts about being a slacker, about getting angry. So he told Moses in Exodus 34, 6, when he was showing his glory to Moses, he said, well, the text says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Slow to anger. So working on this character means being slow to grumble, slow to be angry, quick to listen, slow to speak, because that's actually what God is like. But our natural inclination is to do the opposite. Not only the perversity of sin, I think, but the general inclination to relax rather than to expend effort leads us to be quick to anger and slow to listen. When we are angry, after all, we are kind of already motivated. That's why they're called emotions. They kind of set us up, get us going, without even thinking about it or making a conscious effort. We are energized. When we have something to say, we are usually energized to express ourselves. When we are being spoken to, we are usually not so energized to concentrate on what the person is saying. There's a thousand things in our heads that fight for our attention. So we have to learn. We have to get discipline ourselves, and from discipline come habits, and we become better at this. Maturity means learning to be energetic, quick about what we should do, and learn to put brakes on impulses that might lead us to do otherwise that we need to evaluate first. In the story of the God and the two angels visiting Abraham in Genesis 18, 1-8, we are told multiple times that Abraham acted quickly to welcome his guests. He didn't even ask them if they could stay until dinner time. No, he brought dinner time to them. It was there as fast as he could do so. Abraham wasn't slack towards his guests, but served them with alacrity. Like Peter, the author of Hebrews commands Christians to be generous and welcoming, and he invokes the example of Abraham, I think. I don't know what else this would be. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Apparently, Abraham did not realize who he was dealing with at first. It was just, it was his habit. It was in his emotional makeup by that point to react that way. You want God to find you not slack in your efforts, but quick and cheerful to do what God, what you know God wants. So here's my master metaphor of the day. I think this is a really ingenious parable. If you think otherwise, don't tell me because I'll, I'll, be, I'll be crushed. Obedience as you practically know it in your life, all right, as you experience it, as you appreciate it in others or don't, it's not an on or off switch. It's a volume knob, all right? And through your life, you actually will find more numbers appearing on the dial as you learn to turn it up. And believe me, we're not going to deafen God anytime soon. So it's all right to turn it up when you can. These passages about how Christian slaves should act toward their masters and how we as Christians should act as employees have something to say about how we should grow and function as God's servants. You see, you reverse it and think about that. When a young man gets his first job, it will go dramatically better for him, you know, if he has trained himself to keep the basic commandments. That's great. If you're an employee, if you don't steal from your employer or abuse customers or lie, awesome. Things will go well for you. I mean, or at least they won't go bad. But that's a really low bar expectation, right? 
that's hopefully just the start. A new employee has to learn how to proactively make himself operate efficiently and spontaneously so he's not caught sighing, for example. You don't want want people to see that. It's not good customer relations. He has to figure out not only how to meet the minimum requirements for the job, but hopefully how to even exceed his employer's or his customer's expectations. If not for the stupid, what you say to yourself when you're grumbling and complaining like you shouldn't be, if not for the job, which is some hourly thing, at least for you, you become a better worker. You might be able to get a better job, either with this person or if he doesn't see your value, maybe your value will be seen by someone else. But don't assume you're valuable. Make yourself valuable by performing. Now, again, I'm not here to actually give any workplace advice. I'm talking about we as Christians, we as people developing Christian character, we're still doing it whatever age we're at. And we can train ourselves, right? What does Paul tell Timothy? Train yourself for godliness. And he compares it to athletic training, all right? Working on the 100-meter dash or whatever you want to think about. You know, lots of economists and public policy thinkers consider the youth unemployment rate a disaster, not just because of the lost income of a teenager. No, it's because statistically that teenager is more likely to never get as high a pay as he would when he finally gets employed. He fails to learn basic job skills and interpersonal skills when he's really young and flexible. And he just somehow doesn't, doesn't ever really learn them later. He just doesn't learn them as well or as soon. And it affects his later life, all through his life. Now, that's a statistic. I mean, not everyone is going to have that bad experience. But it is a reality for a lot of people. Learning to be a helpful and productive employee takes training. And there's really no gym for that. The, the training's on the job training, literally. You've you got to work at it. Just like in the Christian life, even though Paul can use athletic metaphors, there's no gym, you know, you can't go, I can't go somewhere and say, well, I want you to really provoke me to anger, and I'm not going to get angry for the next half hour, and we'll see if I do better, and then it doesn't work that way, it's all on the job, remember David, when he was asked how he, what train, how he'd say he was trained enough to go up against Goliath, he said, well, on the job, I had to fight lions and bears, and I've had some experience dealing with life and death situations. People need to learn to be helpful and productive. They don't, they, young people don't miss out on a job. They miss out on learning how to do a better job, how to put up with frustrations, stay on schedule, remain happy to serve customers. I mean, that's something we always do. We always think that the way I believe I would behave without you frustrating me is actually such, shows that I'm such a good person, when in fact, that's not it. It's how you behave when you're being terribly frustrated. Whether you let yourself get frustrated is kind of what you need, we all need to work on. These things require commitment, but they also require experience. Learning to work a job is like learning to play a musical instrument in that way. It's not a question of whether you can play at all, but how well you can play, and if you're practicing enough to be able to play better. You know, if I led you in worship and preaching 10 times, I'd probably be a little bit better than I am now, you know, just trying to follow along and keep everything in my head. I wouldn't have to keep it in my head. It would be in my tongue and my fingers, and it would just happen. The Christian life can be that way. Obeying God can be that way, or it can be more like that, okay? It can always be better. So when Paul tells slaves to obey with sincerity of heart, 
or to work heartily. He's telling them something that has no practical upper limit. Now, we use that a lot of times to kind of excuse ourselves and to kind of discourage ourselves. I mean, God demands perfection. We're not perfect, so God has to forgive us. All true. But we can also see this as a quest, the eternal quest. We can always get better. God is always helping us get better. And by the way, if you want to know all the things God's forgiving you for, you might learn there's a lot more things and you realize once you get a little bit better and get in a place where you can see more of what's going on because this stuff affects your perception, all right? You know, these slaves, we don't know what kind of slaves they are and what kind of situations they're in. They didn't know everything they needed to do right then the next day to be the ideal slave as Paul had modeled for them. They probably got struck by, overwhelmed by all these thoughts, but then they thought about a couple of things maybe if they prayed about it and took Paul seriously, and they worked on those things. And when they worked on those things, then other things happened, and they started realizing, wow, this needs to be dealt with too, and it can go on. There is no upper limit, so we have the eternal quest of our lives. There will always be challenges at work and in life in general. And when you develop the attitude and habits to deal with the challenges you're most aware of, you'll find new challenges that require more change in you, on your part. Christians in general are supposed to do all things without grumbling or disputing, for example. Yes, that means don't complain out loud. But really, you'll realize pretty quick that the best way to not complain out loud is to shove aside the grumbling and complaining if you can that you automatically think of. All right? Get it out of your head. You'll work a lot better that way. It's just stuff dragging you down. That's virtually never the mindset of someone who does anything promptly or cheerfully. He actually becomes cheerful by acting that way. And so people need to be changed. They need to be capable once they've decided what God wants them to do, of doing it wholeheartedly without wavering or hesitating. And we need to think about how we act as employers and how we improve, as, excuse me, how we act as employees and how we improve as employees when you're trying to impress the boss. Should we think of God as a human boss? Well, obviously, our relationship with God is more complex than that. It's richer than that. The Bible, the Bible presents God as our father, husband, king, master, and uses other relational, relational names. And in fact, in an earlier part of Luke, Jesus actually promises disciples that God will be like to them a master, only when they come in, he will serve them. So he's actually said the exact opposite is, is how God acts. All right? But he doesn't want this kind of privileged mindset to creep up and destroy them and corrupt their thinking. So he tells the, the parable that I, I just read earlier in the service. They are to think of themselves as unprofitable servants. Think about an executive who gets his son his first job at the company, at his own company. He owns it. He runs it. His son starts in the mailroom. I mean, that's like a 1950s movie trope or something. But anyway, he starts at a low entry-level position. If he's a good and loving father, of course he cares more about that son than about anyone else among the entry-level employees. Of course he does. But for that very reason, he wants his son to learn to excel at his job. The last thing he wants is for his son to be a slacker because he's the son of the owner. Not only would the father be personally embarrassed by his son's behavior because it would so badly represent him, but he would be concerned about his son's character. 
that he was failing to grow into the person he was meant to be. And precisely because God loves us and wants, us, and wants better things for us and thinks really more highly of us than we do of ourselves in a, in a weird way. That's strange to say, but he does. I mean, remember him telling Moses, you can go and talk to Pharaoh? And Moses says, no, I can't do that. And God did not want to hear that. He did not say, oh, you're so modest, Moses. You're so humble. That's great. He did not do that. It says the, his anger burned at Moses. Though all he did was just, he, he wasn't quick to anger. He went ahead and just told him, made it, he accommodated his, his self-made weakness. But he did not like it. That's not what God wants. He thought more highly of Moses than Moses did. And he was kind of insulted that Moses would say otherwise. God wants us to be more mature, productive, and capable people. He wants our obedience to improve. He wants us to grow into people who can do more and do it more easily and quickly and do it more spontaneously because then he might be able to entrust us with more, by the way. That may or may not be a pleasant thing, but it would be a glorious thing. And the Bible assures us that God is patient toward us. Since we're justified in Christ, we have been reconciled to God so that he is our loving father. He has promised to forgive us. He is forgiving us. So realizing that you need to change and become more, a more obedient person, to turn up that volume knob, shouldn't make you discouraged. God's intention is to, make, is to motivate you to diligently continue in the process that the Holy Spirit is working in you. We know that no sin is excusable. Thank God for forgiveness. But at the same time, we know that people don't often change their habits and attitudes instantaneously. You know, there are Christian slaves who, until they heard Paul's directions, as I said before, until they heard them read out loud, they weren't even thinking of Paul's description of obedience as their goal. Many of them thought, I escaped a whipping today. I, made, you know, I did the basics, so that's good enough. I mean, after all, there's not very much motivation to be a slave, right? But Paul challenged that. Those who listened to that to him were challenged to change the way they acted and change their attitudes in the ways they immediately recognized as contrary to what God wanted. And once they developed new ways of behaving, other areas opened up for them to, to improve. And it's like Paul also telling husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Or telling wives to obey their husbands in all things. That is not something that we do or even can comprehend all at once. It's kind of a quest. You know, what is this vision going to look like? And what's it going to look like in our home with two particular people in particular circumstances? What does fit and doesn't fit this model? Learning to love one's life as Christ loved the church. It's a lifelong endeavor. It involves discovery. It involves practice. It involves improvement as you see possibilities. Now, I probably want to, should mention one thing um, make sure I say this. What I would suggest, you know, we talk about being slow to some things, fast to other things. I would suggest that we all operate on a sanctified double standard here. Um, we should be tough enough on ourselves to improve, but we shouldn't necessarily, especially if we're not directly responsible for the behavior, we should not necessarily be our place to judge anyone else's level of improvement, you know, or especially to offer suggestions. And if you don't want to offer suggestions with your facial expressions, maybe you should try not to even go there mentally if you can help it. And, you know, unless egregious things happen, but I'm just saying, 
I'm not saying we should never evaluate someone else's growth, but at the very least, we should be quick to look for ways to improve our own behavior long before we think about improving other people, right? This is a basic parable, log in your own eye, speck, speck on someone else's, all right? Worry about the man in the mirror. Even Jesus, though without sin, and this is the most important thing, I, even Jesus, though completely without sin, he went through a maturation process, all right? Hebrews uh, 8, 5, 8 and 9, Although he was a son, and now Hebrews already said he was the son, but he's also a model son. He learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, and the word could be mature, and it's actually translated mature elsewhere in Hebrews and our English Bibles. He became mature. He became a source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, and by, by implication, who learn obedience to him through what they suffer. Jesus learned through life to turn up his own volume knob, going from a small child to a grown adult. Jesus said that we should regard ourselves as unprofitable servants who have only done what they are supposed to. Now, I'm going to take a point away from there that was not the point that Jesus was making in that parable, but I still think it's, it's in there as a possibility. The story raises the possibility that we can always work if we're unprofitable ser- servants, we can always work on being a little bit less unprofitable or more profitable, all right? Yeah, we'll never get beyond doing what we ought, but the point is we ought to improve and be able to do more. So we can always think of ourselves. We can become, as, as ones who can become, quicker to obey. But if we are already easily satisfied with our obedience, if we're easily satisfied with how much we already obey when we are less mature, then we are less likely to feel any need to get out of what has become our comfort zone. And that's a tragedy. It should be obvious that God would rather us grow into better people than be comfortable. So let's share God's attitude and grow quicker to obey. Lord, I ask you that you would make this our true drive in life and goal in life or quest in life and i ask you that you would help us by your spirit we thank you that you are patient with us but we thank you also that you created us in your image and you're renewing us even more in your image and likeness as we grow in grace and we ask you lord to continue that process now in jesus name we pray amen